Hello and welcome to Shoot the Breeze, where we take a nostalgic look at a random football magazine from the past. I'm Andy Smith, aka Scott's Footy Cards on Twitter, and with me is Tom Brogan. Hello. In each episode, we'll invite a special guest to join us in trawling through the magazine and discuss anything contained within it. This could be anything from an article, to a photograph, to a competition, to an advert. Basically, if it's in it, then we'll talk about it. So sit back and let's shoot the breeze. Wriggles clear. Might just get the chip and he does, he's scored! Oh, what a great Welcome to a special Shoot the Breeze book group episode where we're joined by two authors who have new books out. First of all, we've got previous guest David F. Ross, who has a novel called There's Only One Danny Garvey. And we're also joined by Andy Bolan, who has written Fierce Genius, Cruyff's Year at Final. lovely looking book that is. And both David and Andy are uh, occasional contributors to uh, Nutmeg. Uh, periodical spoken about a lot on Shoot the Breeze. Thanks for coming along, both of you. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Nice to be here. Nice to be anywhere. Lockdown, isn't it? <laughs> we'll just jump in and start talking about, uh, about Andy's book. I think it's a subject that probably all of us have some, you know, and Cruyff is something all of us kind of know a wee bit about. Andy, can you tell us how, how the idea came to you and how you sort of went about writing it? Well, it's been a, it's been a long, a slow burner. Even though it was a, it was quite uh, quickly written, I suppose, but it was a slow burner for years. Since I was a wee kid, I've been obsessed with the nineteen seventy four World Cup, and and he was like my my hero, he was just football hero, really nuts for him. And as the years went by, I, I knew all these things. Now we're all kind of a footbally people, so you, you now you know all these daft things you shouldn't really grown men shouldn't really know. You know all these daft uh, facts. And anytime I said to people, "What oh, did you know? Cruyff got ripped off. He, he lost about six million dollars." And that's why I had to come out of retirement and just look at you as if you're making it up, right? Because I, so I like to make things up to wind people up. <laughs> anyway, get to the point, that all these daft things happened. And the famous one was that I kept saying, do you know, he went to the equivalent to, it was like Messi leaving Barcelona to go and play for Real Madrid. That's what I always say to people. And, and they played for Feyenoord. They left Ajax to go to Feyenoord. This is, this is Mr. Ajax. And he's going to Feyenoord. So... That was and I started I had all these ideas, all these daft things that I knew had happened in his life. There's so many. The the IX team had a, a meeting and they get so fed up <laughs> shouting at them that they, they backstabbed them and they get rid of them and they ended up going to Barcelona about a week later. So I know I knew all these stories, but this one season always always intrigued me. And it was a kind of a, a writery sort of I keep saying it was a writery thing where I anchored the, the story and won this one season and then I was able to Shoot off and yeah. shoot off. I was able to go off and, and <laughs> go off yeah, in different uh, areas of, and, and explain. Chris career, yeah. uh, so you and, could, and the book as well. His his first yeah. departure from Ajax and Barcelona and yeah, Dumbar- everything's covered. Everything's covered. Even Dumbar- the Dumbar- club as well. <laughs> was that Andy? He played with Feyenoord. He played in Feyenoord nineteen eighty three to eighty four. That was his last season. His very last year of football. But he'd been at Ajax, he'd, been, he'd quit Barcelona, he was only 31, but he ran out of oil, he got ripped off badly. And then he had to, his, his agent and his father-in-law, who's called Cor Costa, he 
got him over to America and he got about half a million a season. He played over there for a few years mm-hmm. and then come back again to Ajax to keep fit, really. And he was out, out running all the guys in training and there was like, chance to play for us. Then they had Cor Costa come up with this gate deal, a gate deal thing. So uh-huh. he was, I think it was F over 10,000. Ajax kept in above that. Cruyff and the club split in two. So he was making incredible money, you know. He was every every, and then it, it came to renegotiating it like, oh, you're too fat, you're too slow, and all that. <laughs> he saw the amount of money he was getting, and they finally offered the same gate deal. So he went to Feyenoord. It's an incredible story, and I think most people uh, they may have maybe heard of it in the last few years. It started to come. I was getting really angry and frustrated because I, I thought this is my big story. This is my big story, and there was all these things were showing up in all the football periodicals, all the different magazines online. Oh. And I think a guy, I'm mentioned mention this, but there was a nice guy that I know, he's one of my friends now, who's brought, who, had a, who brought a book out about the same thing. Uh-huh. But I think his is just about the actual year, all the detail. He's like a encyclopedic guy. Amazing. Uh, I'm dying to read his. And why do you think it is that it doesn't seem to be generally known by everybody? Well, I've got a wee theory. I think it's because of the how much he did for Ajax. And how much he did at Barcelona, it kind of a, it's overshadowed. Mm. See, whenever people come to rewrite history, yeah. they, they always think they, there's that wee bit. He was such a, an ayat. He won the league, the one European Cup three times in a row, and he was World Player, uh, European Player of the Year between '71 and '73, and it was just an incredible run for them. And he, him and uh, Renus Michaels, they basically started. Well, total football's been around for about seven or eight years, but they they started to, in fact, longer than that. And they started to sort of evolve their version of it, if you like, and then popularised it at the World Cup. But they come through from about '65. They were just a semi-professional team. I actually whenever Eunice Michaels came in, and he was making, he was coming into the team. He was like coming a start, and they both went in this journey. So I think the Ajax story is so big, and then the Barca story. He's Mister Mister Barcelona. Do you know what I mean? He was. <laughs> he was just like a superstar there. Just incredible story they, they went there. It's funny and, that, um, you know, the, the total football um, story and philosophy, you know, predating yeah. Cruyff, but nobody would really ask, but people like me who don't know the, the real story wouldn't would associate Cruyff with being the, the kind of... It's all, it's uh, all in the book. Genesis it's all in the book. All that, you know? It was almost, almost like I always say to people, it was almost branded, Dave, you know, they, they branded yeah. it, total football. There were some journalists in 74 started to call it total football mm-hmm. because of the way it was going, that clockwork orange or something like that. It was just, I remember watching it when I was weeing and it was just, and of course, I think I've said to Tom as well before, I, I actually saw him play. Mm-hmm. In 1982, I saw him play for Ajax. When he, nearly, just not long, before, maybe months before he would have been, maybe about a year before he went, went to final. And he was incredible. He was about 35 and he was bossing it. Aye. And see, once, I always say to people, once you saw him play football, your opinion, you just, it was like mathematical fluidity. You just saw this, this guy pinging it and then he started something as a sweeper role at it right back. Mm-hmm. Then he'd be over on the left wing, cross the ball and with the right side, his right foot and put right. on the people. It's just an incredible. I, I talk about it in the book quite a lot. I was, was one of the main the main sort of chapters in my head. I, I need to tell it that I saw him. And, and it was such an amazing night. And the Celtic, at the end of the, the game, uh, the, the Celtic fans applauded him. Applauded Ajax, and they were there was it was two each, and it was it was like a two each, but it, they they absolutely destroyed Celtic. It was one of the games where it was a, a two each draw, but it was a, a real going over. And they had they uh, saw Lerbe and uh, we, we see we guys name again, we winger, we tricky winger, uh, 
But there's a wee guy who Larson, Larson, he came through and scored an amazing goal as well. He just left foot. I played for Man United, wee guy. Mm-hmm. Yes, but Olsen. Yes, but thanks. He was incredible as well. But they just totally destroyed Celtic. And then the second leg, Celtic ended up beating them 2-1. <laughs> and get, getting through. And then he got put the next round. It's funny how, um, I don't know whether it's a generational thing, Andy, but or, or whether it's an attraction to the sort of cult figures. You know, that may be difficult to call Johan Cruyff a cult figure, but yeah, I see that kind of, that, that kind of route between Cruyff and Hadji and Baggio and, you know, players um, that are that wee bit out of the mainstream, I think. You know what I mean? And there's something about them that is maybe... I think differently. I, th- I, think, I know what you mean. Sorry, Dave, in the book I talk about how, what makes a player like a, an exceptional player and a world-class player and then what makes him an icon. And I, I talk about... you got all Muso and all that. I talk about John Coltrane, how he redefined his genre. That's yeah, what Cruyff, yeah, Cruyff, yeah. Cruyff did that with football. And people don't know that. I don't think people appreciate that, how much he changed football. Aye. See the football that Man City play just now? That's because of Cruyff. It's come from that. Aye. And they, they even some as simple as the sweeper-keeper. The big guy who plays in goals just now for, for Man City was actually a fullback, And mm-hmm. he was too lazy to run up and down. He became a goalie. He admits mm-hmm. that. It's in the book again. So I keep saying it's in the book. But it's in the book. <laughs> We're now going to take a look through some articles published in the likes of Shoot, Goal and Charles Buckins' monthly magazines about Johan Cruyff. This will range from Tartan Top with John Gregg to Focus on Features and to some fantastic photos. That's John Gregg talking about... Aye. That would have been... Was that before they played in the... Is that the Centenary game, maybe? Was that 77? 77, yeah. Wow, so that would have been... Did you know that Gerd Muller almost uh, was approached by Venus Michaels? They tried to to imagine that. Imagine Gerd Muller and Cruyff in the same Barcelona team. Yeah. I mean, just what you talk about there, it says, Johan Cruyff too is a remarkable goal scorer, although his range of talents would make him a good player in any department in the team. Uh-huh. And I think he would even make a great keeper if he put his mind to it. Well, there's a, a famous moment whenever he, he, two journalists went over to meet him in, in his house because they heard a whisper that he might be coming to, to Barcelona as the coach. He was on a, he'd fallen out with Ajax a bit and he decided that he was, he was thinking... Sorry, am I, over, am I taking over here? No, no, no. no, no. I can just hear myself jibbering. So. <laughs> somebody, somebody told me out of farm. Anyway, briefly, he had this this thing where when he was talking to these guys, he said, oh, I can't mention going to Barcelona. They, were, they, were, they wrote for the two, the, the big sort of newspaper in Barcelona, and they were over, and the, the wife, his wife felt sorry for him and let him in for a cup of tea. And, and they were sipping the tea as slowly as they could so they, so they could stay for ages of our journals. And then he says, well, anything you want to ask, I can, but I can't really talk about it. But And then within about three hours later, the guys were still there and he was telling them what he was going to do. And one of the first <laughs> things he did was if the goalkeeper stands half a metre out, uh, further out, then he gets to the ball quicker. They, they stop losing like X amount of goals a season. It changes it. The goalkeeper comes out a wee bit. The defence move up. And his, his whole thing was always about shapes. But he's, he was always obsessed with He actually convinced the, the manager of Holland, uh, the Netherlands, not to take or to switch a goalkeeper because the goalie could play with the ball at his feet in the World Cup for 74. And that's why they went so far. Mm. The only goals that they conceded was in the, the final, I'm sure. Oh, Charlie Nick, what a goal that was. He scored an amazing goal in the second leg, Charlie Nick. George McCluskey also scored another game uh, out in the Olympic Stadium. Aye. And he at, at the end of the did I, have I told you the maybe I'm trying to remember who I've 
it was on off the ball, but I never got a chance to see it. I was there's a crack story with George McCluskey. Can I share it with you? George yeah, McCluskey yeah. goes in after the, the game. Then I'll shut up for a minute, let Dave speak. <laughs> <laughs> or is this my wee bit? I can talk all the time. <laughs> but the universal lecture on it. <laughs> Professor Gibberish. Right, so anyway, we're, uh, it's it's 2-1 and two each at uh, Celtic Park and they go over and they play in the Olympic Stadium. So they move the Olympic Stadium. So he was actually getting more money because every time he moved to a bigger uh, stadium, he got more dough. But the, the game... In this one, George McCluskey scored a, a goal and they won it. And he went in at the end of the game and asked for uh, FM. They wanted to uh, change jerseys into the dressing room, the, the, the Ajax dressing room. And everyone ignored him. And big Johan's getting a, a massage on the table. And George McCluskey goes out crestfallen. And Cruyff goes, I'll switch with you. Cruyff changes his jersey with him, mate. So he's like, walks out into the dressing room and thinks he's it. And then years later, much later, about maybe 10 or 15 years later, He's his uh, brother is playing five sides and t- where's the jersey five sides? He's wearing Christ and he gets knocked. His, his Christ jersey gets knocked. So it just shows you know that we would be putting it up into a, a glass thing and keep it protected and all that. And yeah. he's already played five sides in the East End of Glasgow or somewhere, Hamilton. I don't know where he was from. Incredible. Do you reckon they know what they got? No, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I don't think so. They probably just, or maybe they did because he. I think if my big brother played for Celtic Rangers or Scotland or something and they had all the training gear, he would be wearing it, wouldn't he? Or the Umbro <laughs> gear and that, the real, yeah. real boots and all that. Mm. So so the, this little article here talks about the, the two games you spoke about. So it says in the first half, which saw four goals, 2-2 two, two was the score at half-time and full-time. After 29 minutes, there was two mm-hmm. goals scored. Uh, four goals scored, sorry, yep. Yeah, yeah, a grinning Cruyff said in the dressing room afterwards, that was what I wanted. Not only because the result was good for us, but because the supporters stayed to cheer both teams. And, they did it. and at the end of the game, he brought he brought Ajax back out again, Cruyff, mm-hmm. and they did a you know they applauded everyone, which is very rare. Yeah, very rare. But it seems, I mean, from what you were saying about the game, Celtic were basically humped two-two. You know, thump two two, and um, that isn't even well, <laughs> Cruyff seen it there. He's he's been a bit magnanimous about it. At the end of the game, the, the, the Ajax manager tried to hoist up Cruyff and they were all celebrating like they were through. <laughs> Another thing I remember as well, it was before mobile phones and all that, and everyone had, all the people in the, I was in the jungle, and the, all the people in the, the stand across all had uh, cameras with flashes on it. Yeah. So every time the ball went for a throw-in, he was taking everything and shooting. He used to take throw-ins all the time so he could talk to the coach and, and tell him what to do. And t- it was amazing. Mm. But it was some night, it was like a blitzkrieg every time he took a, a throw in. Yeah. See, you just mentioning that there sort of makes me think that that's something that's missing nowadays. And you, I mean, you still get some flashes in mobile phones, but you don't get that, con- you know, that sort of barrage of flashes when, know, when things happen. You, know, it was, you don't see it anymore. Yeah. One of the, the, my pals said to me, I tried to see the, the game, I tried to, I wrote a, a draft with that chapter from memory to see how much I could. Because I remember the day at school, I was at mm. school, and I got a lift over as well, again for nothing. And I was I was the same height, and I wasn't the same weight as I was, but I was. I remember I was quite tall at school, and I was 6'1", and uh, I think that sounds if I'm smaller now, but I was quite tall for in my group. And I remember <laughs> this guy gave me a lift over, and I said, sorry, I just vaulted over, <laughs> getting in to see Cruyff. Also getting to see George Best for free, that's maybe another feature, maybe you could do a feature, yeah. maybe you see him for free. <laughs> but it was just a not, it was a nutcase time for football wasn't it mm. yeah getting a lift over when did, when did, I wonder when that stopped 
know, like aye, the change the, the, the turnstiles, eh? And the tax man get a bit more cute, maybe. Aye. Yeah. See, I spoke about this before as well, where I hated my dad giving us a, a leftover because I just felt I was going to get caught. Everybody did it, but I was going to be the one that was going to be caught and say, no, you, back out. And it never happened, with it? That's, that's not your dad. <laughs> <laughs> We used to go along into the, the football, and, and it would be. It wasn't. I, I'm trying to try remember how much it cost. It was maybe only about. It was about four quid or something. But then maybe four, five, maybe a fiver tops oh, again. I think. But back the sort of time. Maybe even cheaper now. Cheaper than that, yeah. 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 I remember it used to be fifty pence to get into Clyde Bank. Run about that sort yeah, of. Same at Brimfield as well. Mm. You never ever. It's funny. You never. Every time I used to go and see Adrian Albion overs. As long as it was a live game on, especially during the week and there was floodlights and all that, you, you always went to the games. Mm. And it was 50p. Yeah. And a pound. I think, you know, you go, it's nuts. I think Lassie's got in free as well. <laughs> in late times. Yeah. But this, this, uh, I've, I'm sure I must have told this story on here before, Tom, have I? About my brother, Peter, how we all went to a midweek game and he, he says, I'm going to get in the Lassie's gate. And he put a cagoule on and put the hood up and right tight and he, he walked through but he got stopped and the guy at the turnstile says sorry mate this is for lassies and he went I'm a lassie <laughs> <laughs> and he got in but I did thought, he get in? I, I thought the poor guy must have thought oh my god man but he's not right in the head <laughs> can you say that? Well, either that, that or that, that, that poor lassie's in for a tough time over the rest of their life I feel sorry for him yeah no, sure I guess this one is just a, a um, big conversation between Shoot and Renus Michaels. Um, let's see what else we got. He was part of the SFA think, tank, tank as well, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. Later on. Johan Fife outplayed Cruyff. So this is um, a bit Rangers player um, outplaying Cruyff, apparently, in a game. But... Well, they played uh, in the 1973. Uh, it was like a centenary game. It was actually the first ever. Unofficial Super Cup. Yes, thank you. And because Rangers had been involved in some uh, trouble at the Barcelona, remember in Barcelona for the '72, yeah. yeah. and they, they still had a ban, so they they wouldn't UEFA uh, wouldn't confirm it. So they, they turned in a centenary game, and Cruyff played. Now I think it was three one. Oh, I can't remember. No, something like that. I don't remember right. that player at all. It looks a bit like um, Willie Johnson, Graham Fife. Yeah. Um, well, I, I know what's going to come up next. Is this Sinclair? Is this Sinky? Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, he was yeah, a superstar it's... after that. He signed from Dumbarton. And you know the Dumbarton story as well. Sorry, Tom, what are you going to say there? Yeah, no, I was just going to say, yeah, that is uh, Graham Sinclair. That's a picture of him and he's Dumbarton. Shut eye. That, that was his wait, second game or something for Celtic. Aye. Aye. And he, he, was, <laughs> he was brought in, I think. I'm trying to think. Was it Mark Reed, maybe? Or, I can't remember. The, the, maybe the fullback. At the time they left back, and he just he just marked sing, he just marked him at the he just stuck stuck with him. He never he never left him alone all night. And he, he still talked about. It. He just joined them. So so tell us about the Dumbarton. I mean, well, I the Dumbarton I thing was, yeah. Cruyff was always played at the Dunhill Masters, uh, the golf up at St Andrews, and for years and years and years he was always he get more and more mellow. Obviously, he got older, he's a lot more approachable, and they would chat away because he's he's charitable stuff. And uh, he was, he gave about 2012 or something. He was asked about the story about Dumbarton. He goes, "Ah, that's true." <laughs> and he just thought it was an ordinary myth. Yeah. And Sean Fallon had approached him, 
But Sean Fallon had, had an idea about getting the gate. I think he could pay about two grand a week if you get the if everyone is everyone showed up to watch it. He had to turn around and say, "Oh, I've got no, that's a hundred percent correct. I, I, that happened." So he ended up by they, they made an approach. Cross said, "No, they made an approach, but it was too cold for me at that age. I needed yeah, the sunshine for my <laughs> to let my muscles relax and, and get better and all that." Everybody was amazed at it, but they did. They offered him. Uh, they knew that he was going. He was. He had a wee sort of year off, and they had a a point where they, they had a wee window where he could. You know, if he was coming and going for America, he had like he was. He was play. He played a few games and played for Levante as well for a wee while. Uh, that didn't work out though. What sort of they, period I, so was this? I think it was nineteen eighty one, maybe. Because. Mm. Round about this sort of time, I guess Dumbarton had made a couple of big sales, hadn't they? I mean, um, it's, when did it was a guy McLeod called Bob uh, Robertson, who was a director or something, and he he was friends with Cor Costa, his agent. They knew each other because he's yeah. some guy who owned a, an engineering company who they both knew. They had mutual friends, and it, it happened. There was a they, they found it, it was a, a real story. Then they made an approach, and Cruyff was quite cool about it. I said, oh, they made their approach were really nice. And then Sean Fallon said, oh, he was a really nice lad. I went out to meet him and all that. The big Irish accent and the big hands. <laughs> I, went out to get, I went out to talk to him and we chatted. And, but, uh, but he never came. He ended, <laughs> ended up going to Ajax. I ended up going back to uh, the Dips, the Washington Diplomats, I think. Mm-hmm. At one time, there was a, a Dumbarton uh, fan website called uh, Cruyff Says No. <laughs> Is that right? Well, one of the there's a brilliant line in the book. I won't waste it, but I, I finished the chapter talking about uh, links to Scotland and all that, and I, I talk about I won't waste it. But it's a cracking line in the one of the fan websites. The guy, guy was a good line, so I used that at the end. Barcelona bid. So uh, Barcelona bid half million pounds for that man Cruyff. So when's this from? Nineteen seventy-three. Seventy-three, yeah. Seventy-three. Yeah, it, was, uh, it was a bit more than that. They they had to they couldn't afford. Barcelona was so poor they couldn't. Or the, the actual the state that the, the Barcelona, not in Catalonia, they couldn't. Yeah, they couldn't allow it to go through. To go through is sort of farming or agricultural stuff, you know, like something to do with tax or, or customs or something. Their version of customs it had to come through as a an agricultural like business deal or something, and it was about hundred tractors or something. And I say I it was six million guilders, two million euro, uh, two million dollars. Nine to five or nine hundred and twenty-five thousand or something uh, sterling it cost. Mm, I love this the deal. This amazing. He's a brilliant, isn't he? He's a class, class dresser. Oh. There's another one I think where he's um, getting one of the awards, and he just, he just looks yep. so suave in it. What, what's the first thing you always look for? You always look for the one they want the most like to meet. All right, okay. So you, you see, there's a kid. Too many to mention, he says in that one. I know, that sounds like him. But um, let's see. focus on. Favourite food, beef, steak. There we go. Just needs to add chips to that. (laughs) Uh, Likes tennis, dislikes empty stadiums. Do you know, he he was a baseball player as well. He played uh, for the Dutch uh, Dutch youth set-up at baseball. Hmm. Best friend, Bob Nice. Um, Nice, I don't know who Bob Nice is. That's that's, that's one, I I should know that. mm -hmm. One of the years. Biggest dragon soccer, dirty play. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't measure himself very often. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, height, five foot ten, I don't measure myself very often. Um, (laughs) That's one thing you noticed, or I noticed when I saw him play, long legs. It sounds stupid to say that. It's the stupidest thing. I tell that to everybody. 
but he did. He had really long legs, and he sort of he was like a an eight hundred meter runner. He, he did a, a different. Whenever he, he now you see guys, aye, he, 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 he was wiry. Aye. See whenever Rutulet Rutulet played in the final team at the end of the, the career, and he ended up having to. Whenever he said that, whenever he was, he couldn't get a ball off him. When he was thirty six and thirty seven. He couldn't get a ball off him. He was so wiry. And he was spiky, he would elbow you. And you learned, you learned how to keep the ball from him. One of the biggest things, don't lose the ball, keep the ball. An uh, in, interesting, difficult, most difficult opponent, Bertie Votes of West Germany. Aye. It was, I remember going through in the final, they, they, they kept the ball and it went right through. The, the Germans never got a touch of it, the ball. But it wasn't Bertie, it was, what's his name? Uh, Uli, Uli. Honus. Aye, Uli Honus. We got their name. I think it was him that brought him down. So yeah, there's a good black and white picture of Troy Clare looking mean and moody. His lovely wife, Danny. Danny, that's, I heard Dad was his agent. Aye, that would be, that would be about 72 maybe. What was the uh, story behind, I mean, jumping ahead in years here, but what was the story about I'm not going to the 78 World Cup again? Was that a, well, a kidnap plot or something? He got kidnapped. He was in his, his flat in, um, in Barcelona and their dogs, they had dogs and all that, two dogs, and they went the door get chapped and they come in and they and they get kidnapped and they had the police following them for about six months, staying with them and in their house and all that. Yes. But it, they think it was a ploy to stop them from going and it worked, they wouldn't go. But the rumour on football, the rumour from the Dutch side is it it wasn't as dramatic as all that and it, his wife just didn't want him going because of the, the way they were all behaving in 74 apparently. So it was a wee eye, wee, that was a tabloid version. <laughs> I love that he's got his, his Agnews bag there as well. He's carrier. No, he's, I know. <laughs> yeah, it's full of fags, isn't it? Mm. He's got the ID bracelet on his wrist there as well. Yeah. These are cracking photographs. So I guess yeah. this this one is from 1978, November 1978. Well, it's the famous story about the Cosmos. It was Amit Ertigan. It was Ertigan Brothers who owned Atlantic Records. Yeah. Atlantic Records guys owned the Cosmos. And they didn't own the Cosmos, they owned New York Cosmos. That'd be quite good, wouldn't it? <laughs> they, owned, uh, they owned New York Cosmos. And he wouldn't let you off. He signed a $500,000 deal to, as, as a kind of a like a, a first refusal kind of a thing. So he signed with it. If, if he was going to come, he would go and play for them. And then he went over and he hated the AstroTurf. So he ended up going to LA Galaxy over on the other side, beside Renus Michaels again, teamed up with him. But he wouldn't play, but that's a, that's a Cosmos top he's got mm-hmm. on. Yeah, great. great. And this is Johan Nieskens and uh, Croy. They were, he was, that's Cor Costa there, that's the guy I'm talking about. Because yeah. his, his daughter actually looks like him. Ah, and Nieskens as well, who's some player. The George Best of Holland, this one is it's from quite, a, This looks like quite an early. Yeah, 1969, profile. August 69. Ah, easy, 69, aye. That was an amazing strip. So I, that was one of the big, I, I was heartbroken when they came out and I tell my son, they were wearing lots of those, like St. Johnson or something, St. Johnson cat they done. Mm-hmm. Well, there's anything wrong with St. Johnson. Congratulations and all that. So, but I meant just in terms of the the dynamic of the night and all that. The floodlights were on and the rain. Oh, it was just perfect. And then they came out and I stupid. After five minutes, you forgot about it. You know. Would would they have would they have played against? Because I'm just wondering the photograph of him in the kit, the arm beside it looks like stripes or hoops. That I'm could have been. Uh, no, that's def- that's maybe Groningen or something like that. Mm-hmm. They played Celtic in seventy one, eh? The European Cup in seventy one. Mm. They did. They played them. Uh, aye, they, they Celtic beat them one nothing at Hamden. They had to move the game for the crowd. 
That's right. And the game at Hamden, they won one nothing. But Jimmy Johnson scored. There's a cracking photo later on of Jimmy Johnson meeting his son. You going to show that a minute? I, I don't know if I've got that one there. There's Just, a big long legs I was telling you about. Quite quite muscly as well. Quite aye, aye. He's and a look, good trainer. Looking at the shorts, he doesn't seem to be wearing number 14 there. He's got number 9 in his no, shorts. No, there's a famous story about that as well. Number okay. 14 was... Um, he was in the, the dressing room with Jerry Murin at Ajax. And Jerry Murin used to always wear number 9. And he couldn't he couldn't find his his, his, his shorts. So Cruyff, I think Cruyff either gave him his or he went in and he pulled out the first one he found it. It was a number 14 and he played really well. They switched, I think maybe gave him, he got a 10 and he got a, a 14, something like that. Couldn't find the nine. Something the guy, George McCluskey's five aside team probably stuck there. <laughs> his, his brother's team, they knocked it. So the, the number nine, so he got the 14 and then that myth around the number 14, it was just totally coincidence. He took out the big laundry basket and it was the first one that came in. But because they had a good game, I think they both scored or something. They kept it for superstition. I'm surprised he's got he's got shorts with the, the Adidas logo on it. Well, there, that's a big shout because he's in the sleeve there. You can aye, see the Puma. They took it off the KNVB. The the, the, the Dutch FA did everything to try and keep them. They, they technically should have been number one as well because they they did it in alpha, alphabetical order. Aye, it was nuts. Yeah, that's interesting, Andy. Point that because of the shirt and the shorts have, have just got two stripes. Yeah, yeah the shirt they took the stripe off and, and the they covered it. But uh, there's Puma and the story with Puma and the deal with them. But that's yeah. quite early on. That one. I love this photograph. Seventy-three. That's, that's just a belter. Johan Cruyff, your most exciting European player of nineteen seventy-three. This one shoots. Yeah. I think the yeah. I think one of the things that's helped. Apart from the fact that he was obviously a phenomenal player, as it, it, there's a kind of timeless look about him, I think. You know, like, you know, I, I know we were we were having a laugh at um, some of the some of the players that played in in, uh, in England or Scotland and what they looked like, and you know, the, the their teeth falling out and hair sort of combed over and stuff like that, fat bellies and stuff like that. I, I think he's always looked like. He could be playing now. He's got. It looks yeah. a wee bit like Berbatov at times, you know, and I think that's probably helped with that iconicism Iconic we were talking about earlier on, yeah. and just the kind of I don't know. Lush is the kind of word that you, you're <laughs> kind of reaching for, you know what I mean? Um, and there's other players that kind of fall into that category that you feel could have played, could really have played in any kind of context, you know. But I, I mean, it's, it helps the fact he's 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 not a bad looking geezer, mm. you know. He was different looking, and he, but his wife, like he was always very dismissive of the way he looked, and didn't like the way he looked at times. But it was his wife that made, his, made him grow his hair in, and she was a sort of fashionista. She was the one that was always she was a wee trendy one, telling him what to wear and all that. But nah, he was something else, wasn't he? It was really heartbreaking when he died as well. Went to remember Aye. all the stuff about him was amazing. Kissinger, did you see the thing Kissinger did about him? Kissinger did this amazing. He was, you can Google it after once we're finished. Kissinger was just, he's about 93 now, and he's seen how he's at the game whenever he did the, right. it was the semi, the semi final, was it the semi final against Brazil when they won 2 0? And it was Cruyff's uh, second goal was voted the uh, goal of the, the, comp, the tournament. But it wasn't like a, like a, like a 45 yard volley or, anything, or a, a diving header or something. It was like a, a total football goal. And he, mm-hmm. he just reached it, he got to the front post and reached it and, and got the ball in. And he talks about 
Kissinger still talks about it. Some of the little bits were incredible for him. Aye. Sitting bubbling and all that. Aye, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, some man. This is brilliant. Thanks very much for this. No, no, no problem. So this one is um, playing for Holland again. You can see these are two stripes on, on everything now. But they were black shots before, weren't they? White shots. Were black, but these are white. Now they're playing in black yeah. though as well, so they yeah. wouldn't have changed. I think this might be against Argentina. Johan Cruyff's records, facts and figures of the career of one of the greatest footballers the world has ever seen. Could almost oh. be a song. That's the year that he didn't win European uh, Player of the Year, it was Be- uh, Beckenbauer that won it in '72. And they reckon that he should have won it because he the, the 1972 European Cup final he played probably one of his finest games for Ajax. He scored, he scored twice in the final against Inter Milan. Quite an interesting wee thing they've done down the bottom here is cost to Barcelona per official game. So for each game, the cost was thirty. Put the Cascadio material in there for <laughs> yeah. that one. Yeah, that, uh, that image in the top is quite interesting. It's the only one that. Doesn't it really look like him at all? Right. That must be the earliest. That must be the earliest. He's a bit longer. 70, 71, that one. Plus, the one at the very top. All right, right, okay. Yeah. I think I may have, I think there may be one coming on, which is from 17 or something. Him and Pete Kaiser were the two two pals that come through. And that was one of the reasons why I went to Barcelona, funny enough, because his teammates voted in Kaiser as the captain. That one there. Aye, same as you. So I think that's from that sort of time oh. as well. Just love the background there as well. You get the trees and the, and the house there in the background. I, I, I don't know if it's Ajax at home or, or wherever playing. I mean, it all, almost looks like a sort of non-league ground or something, or a junior ground. Mm-hmm. No, it that was on even then. Aye, it could have been a cup game. Not good. The cup was uh, always good in the, the Netherlands. They always saw the Dutch sides always... Now, some of the, the, the FA Cup, the equivalent of half of Scotland, we can't really, we haven't got the option to do it with the squad rotation or something, but they, they always played, they, they were proud of the Cup. It was a big thing to win it. Cruyff won the league yeah. and the Cup uh, and the Player of the Year that final season. Hmm. Feyenoord. I love, I love this one with, the, with his the daughter there. It's really brilliant. Just a smile on her face. Is... The other life of Johan Cruyff, the world's top superstar at home. There's we Jordi. Uh-huh. He's he's on a horse and one of them as well, just looking quite regal and Lord of the Manor. <laughs> is that a yeah, there's, there's no situation you can put him in where he doesn't look classy, really. Does this see one of the photographs? There's a famous photograph I'm taking it around. Uh, that was Argentina because I remember that one of the guys who was defended about five or six ago, one of the pictures. And there's a famous bit in the World Cup when he, he takes the ball around the, the goalie and he. And, he, and then he cuts back to an angle and he manages to get the ball in his left foot. And he had this thing about, he grew up in Bettendorf, which is, I think it's Dutch for uh, like concrete village or something. And it was like a, after the, the post-war experimentation, we set cement and they built all these areas and housing areas. It was like a housing project, but it was all concrete. And that's what he played on. And he, he had this theory about one of the reasons why he never goes to ground. You hardly very rarely ever saw him diving and diving for a free kick or falling because he stayed in his feet because he was it was a thing that if you fell on the concrete you busted your knees and busted your arms and your face and all that but in that one particular uh, picture it's a great image because 
you can see that he's been round and he's stayed. He's managed his balance and his posture. He used to always say the way the ball ricocheted helped, helped his control and all that. That's a funny thing you say that. And I, I remember an interview with Zidane saying the same thing, you know, the, talking about how great his balance was. And he'd said it's, it's basically from playing in the roads in Marseille, you know. Can I tell you, Johan Cruyff tried to sign him. And, and Bayern wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't let it go. They wouldn't put it through. Right. That's Mario Kempes against Valencia, I think. Yeah. Is it Valencia he played for? Yeah. 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 There you are. The new camp hasn't really changed much, isn't it? Not? It's not. not the same. I actually saw a photograph quite recently that showed you it from quite a few years ago and again today or recently. And it's difficult to make out. I think I think they've, they've went down the way. I think they've dropped... The pitch and the under the half a bit, aye. Yeah, so I always wanted them to do that with Hamden. Cause now that stupid running track they've got. Imagine uh, if they were well. under. <laughs> See if they were down twenty feet. <laughs> one of those. One of these days, I'll tell you that story. Please do. <laughs> uh, I'll meet you in Watersons once this is all finished. Oh, we, had, we we had a division that kept uh, that kept Hamden at Hamden. I kept the SFA. Is that right? Aye, but I don't think there's. I'm not quite sure what's. They're not happen. mining land or something. They're probably be some. No, no, there's. Um, I don't know what their plan is. To be honest, I mean, I, I think there was a hope that um, you know there would be World Cup sharing um, in the longer term. I, I, whether the pandemics changed everybody's views, but we we gave them the Stuttgart model that would have sort of taken the ends off the stadium, dropped the pitch, brought the thing closer in, I mean, that, that's that's quite a persuasive vision that, wow. you know, in, in football money terms isn't ridiculous, you know. The problem with all of this is football's so, in Scotland, wrapped up, in, it's so wrapped up in politics, you know, and, and finance and all the rest of it and where it's going to come from, you know, um, that that vision still exists. But whether, what they'll do with it, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not really that sure, to be honest. That'd be incredible, wouldn't it? So there's a, a cracking movie that I talk about in the film, and he's he's actually driving in that car, and you should see it's like a like a, a tape, but it's like a Betamax tape. I don't know where they were, where they see the old fashioned things the truckers used to have, the eight tracks, an eight track it's called yeah, or something. Eight track, yeah. That's what he's like. He's like he's like shoving it in as if it's so. Then he goes in. He's he's got a, the first, very first uh, VHS video and all that. 70, 72 or seventy three again it was. I still, somebody told me when I was doing research for this that, that I think he still, or the family still own that house. Or one of the, maybe the daughter, he, he's got, a, a, well, he's got one daughter who stays out here altogether. And the, the son's obviously taking all the Croy Foundation stuff on now, Jordi. But I think they still have that. And they've got a place in Barcelona as well, they've kept. So your book, Fierce Genius, is yes. out now, Andy? I knew it was here for some reason. <laughs> Where can where can people buy it? Well, you can get it anywhere you can. The cheapest, and you can get it for the publisher. Obviously, they would like to hear that pitch publishing. Yeah, so it's available in Waterstones and Amazon and all the usual places. You can order it in W. H. Smith as well. I noticed there was. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to help people and sort of give people a. If I hear anything cheaper, I'll tell people on Twitter. No, because <laughs> it's I but it's, there's a lot of nice photographs in it, and it feels nice. It's a nice book. It feels nice, doesn't it? Yeah. Thanks for buying it as well. It's nice. It's a nice cover as well. Uh, that's quite a good cover. Good 40s. Cover. 
Yeah, and of course, you've got some other books out as well, Andy, both football and non-football. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, funny you should say that, uh, Tom. Thanks. I've got, uh, yes, this is History of Scottish Football 100 Objects. And picture, actually, I'm editing today, and I think by the end of this, or the end of March, sorry, I have to, the History of European Football in 100 Objects, which allows me to attack the English and not attack, that's not the right thing, see, I like English people, but um, to go have a, a look at all the things that they're, they've been pretty bad at, and, and a lot of fascism, and do you know that Franco won the, the pools? General Franco won the pools twice in Spain, that's one of my chapters, I'm doing that today, and he, he, he used an anagram of his name, uh, kind of Canfroth or something, <laughs> he can't remember his name, but he changed his name as if he, nobody would know it was Franco, I was like, that's like somebody changing their name to Lou Hitt. So you it was Hitler and all that. <laughs> I so I'm doing that. That's my second mother book. Maybe you're thinking that's that one, the, the one I was yeah, a, Oh, you got it, Spanner, a tour diary. Aye, that's uh, me. Aye. Well that's so, Kurt, obviously. That's not me. Yeah, it's quite an, an entertaining book. So I and do this uh, documents your time playing drums for Captain America. I, I, I was in Captain America. Nirvana. Right, thanks for that. Aye, so uh, yeah, no, it's a very very entertaining, very entertaining book. It sold really well in uh, Watson's. I was actually trying to say to Dave earlier that the guy who works in, uh, I don't want to embarrass him, is Ian, guy with the long hair, sort of big guy looks like Jesus. Aye, aye. He was telling me that you worked next door. He was kept on telling me about your books anytime time I was in. Aye, they were was really, we, we worked in, I, I'm in aye, the, he said you uh, worked. Street, and, and I know Carmen really well. Uh, aye, that's right. She's nice. She gave me stickers to, if it was too busy just to put stickers on and come in and sign the book. I was like, some sort of care the community guy getting in at lunchtime <laughs> I, work, I still work a couple of days a week in the town I was, and, uh, uh, I, I was convinced that when, when the book came out that they were going to give us a wee table at the front door you know because I'd always been nagging for the last five books I've been nagging her right I've, I've paid my dues here I should be getting a wee aye, table at the front definitely. door and I'm sure she was she was going to I said, I'd, I'd, really I'd, like, I'd like to have somewhere at a table where good shop manager just to nick it, you know, uh, without having to go into the go into the store. So not too far in, just nope. in the first the first area. I was through in, in Leith, one of the shops in Leith. Uh, it, it, I think it was in that gap. Maybe we had that wee weird gap in between where we were allowed to go out again, hmm. and we went up to uh, through in Leith in the the ocean terminal. Is it the place? Ah, and right, right. We were in at the. The Watersons, and sometimes I go in and I, I check up and see have you got the Nirvana diet or diary, or have you got history of Scottish football? Goes, we've got that book. He was in looking for it. And then he come back and he said, "Oh, I think it was in the front window, and all the all the wee kids up here are they'll, they'll just knock it. If it's a football, book, they'll just knock it." And I think you know what? You've asked me my day. <laughs> the guy looked at me as if I was a nutcase. I was no, that's good. I've prepared to go to get any bother. I'll, I'll, I'll forfeit that eighteen pence. <laughs> <laughs> So before we, uh, we speak to uh, David a wee bit about, about his book, uh, as I said at the start, David and Andy and myself actually are, uh, are all contributors to Nutmeg magazine. So I just wonder just to wee chat about, about Nutmeg. Andy and David, if, have you got a recent article in there you want to, you want to talk about? I, try, I think it was maybe, was it in 17? I think it was in 17. I did the, the story about the Kilmarnock game and I, I went to... As a Rangers fan, going to a Kilmarnock game where they needed to win 6-0 and hope Clyde got beat, it was 1989. Um, and that, that was a pretty entertaining day. Um, but remarkable, I think, probably for the fact that it's one of the few times I've ever invaded the pitch. Um, so, <laughs> for a Rangers fan to get so carried away 
um, with Kilmarnock appearing to have avoided relegation, that I would go and cut up the park at Palmerston, uh, Palmerston ground. Uh, I think was was quite something. And then obviously Clyde scored um, in the 48th minute of injury time, I think, to put Kilmarnock down. But I think the funny thing now is um, that uh, I mean, I'm quite, I'm quite, I'm a Rangers fan, but I live in Kilmarnock. I'm quite fond of Kilmarnock. My son works, I've worked on the coaching staff, and you know, everybody that you'll meet will tell you that that was the best thing that ever happened to Kilmarnock. Going, going down. Um, Tommy Burns came in the following year. There was a whole sort of uh, issue with um, chain. You know, the ownership of the club at that time was in a bit of turmoil and it was the fleeting era after that um, and then you know they quickly came back up they, they played some great football they got promoted they got promoted again and you know until until now that looks like their um, status in the top league being secured all that time and it all kind of came back from that going down at that time to, to the lowest division I think they're going to struggle to avoid it you know, it's it's looking like it's it's going downhill fast this season. Um, I don't think so. I don't but, think you know, so. I'd maybe just not acted with the best intentions. I think they probably not acted and brought a manager in earlier. I mean, I think sometimes, you know, Dyer, by all accounts, is a, a really lovely guy and everybody liked him and, you know, did a lot for the community and stuff like that here as well. But I think having come from being um, an assistant manager, um, probably just wasn't really what a team like Kilmarnock would have needed, I think. You know, Tommy Wright will be a good it'll be a good um acquisition as a manager, I've I've no doubt. But I just my worry is that they've they've made that decision a bit too late. So it was good it was good to write that wee story about Kilmarnock. And particularly since one of the the approach I kinda of took about it was that it was a wee bit like a movie because of seven or eight different people involved in getting to the game. Um, and I knew them all, but it was a wee bit of a tribute to Sandy Armour as well. I don't know if you know Sandy Armour. Yeah, yeah. uh, yeah. Aye, I mean he's such a great guy, you know. And I think he was he was really vocal in the previous um, the previous difficulties that they were having before um, Clark came in, um, and it it, it kind of felt like a one man campaign at, at mm-hmm. times, you know. Um, I just I thought doing doing something that's got him at the centre of it, um, but in a way that's a wee bit doesn't it take itself too seriously. I think it's it's kind of paying tribute to people like Sandy who are the life and soul of any club, you know. Um, and you know, he kind of he, he kind of deserved that, and it was great to see him on that the view from the terrace thing, and then getting on off the ball and all the rest of it. Uh, not off the ball, sorry. Football focus. Aye, football focus. Um, so yeah, that was a that was a good one. I've got I'm planning to do. Um, Ali keeps asking me if I'll do a story about Rangers, and I and I'd written something at, at the lowest ebb, I think. Um, and the lowest the lowest ebb wasn't actually going to Annan and playing with the hedges and all the rest of it. Um, the lowest ebb for me was they got beat by Hibs, uh, and I can't remember when this was now actually, but. I, I thought, right, I'm going to write something here about um, the structure of the club and the finances and all this 
stuff about identity and everything. Uh, and I did, and I, I didn't do anything with it. Um, it was just like getting it out of my system. And I thought it would be nice to have looked at that now and dusted that off. Because the centre part of that piece was I, I couldn't really... It was questioning whether I was a real supporter of the club because I thought, you know, the baggage that came with everything, why not just admit it's a fresh start, you know, get away from it all. You know, is, is it only fans that bother about whether it's 55 titles or whether it's no titles or, you know, and it's the, the piece was about the dilemma of fans constantly looking forward to the next game and looking forward and you're only as good as your next game. But are tied to this baggage of 100 years of, 150 years of success or whatever. And that whole thing about, you know, the, the central point of your club's history will eventually get to a point where none of the, it's beyond the lives of any of the fans. So does how, how can you claim that that's your greatest point if none of the fans were alive mm. at the time? Do you know what I mean? It's, it's a kind of weird, it's a kind of weird anchor that, fans cling on to, particularly fans of, you know, that's got the strength of that rivalry between Rangers and Celtic, I think. So anyway, the next bit, the, the next bit was going to be an update on that. Sorry, Andy, finally. That's fine. That's fine. That's an update on that called the Resurrection Shuffle. So I don't know how that will go down. That's the next nutmeg piece. Seeing the, the, the European book, I actually talk about the, the this is just before, it's uh, Rangers really got a stranglehold in the title and all that, this year's title. And I said that if they do, if Rangers get this title, they should go and get the, the 300 guys who were at the game at Brecon. Mm-hmm. Whenever Alan McCoy's couldn't get, it was the first game, I always remember it. Mm-hmm. And I told my two pals on one of our, our Friday nights or pub nights, the Georgian pub night, that's a, I shouldn't have said that, it's like advertising. My, my, my local, and we have a wee night and we, we talk about football and there's, there's a couple of guys that are big Rangers fans on it and a couple of Celtic fans and an Airdrie fan and all and you know, we get to the point I said that if, if Rangers uh, win this title they want to get the guys that were at the hedge up at Brecon and remember there's a point where the ball went up the ball was stuck in the the ball gets stuck in the the, the hedge and they, they had to go and get a ladder to get the ball out and all that and the, the guys were having a, they were having a great time but that was the time where McCoy was struggling to get 13 players remember that mm. And now they see what they've done with Stevie G and all that. All that stuff. It's some, that's some journey. You think about it? it? Just really, really bad, bad decisions at the very beginning. And I think the difficulty for me writing anything about Rangers is we work for Rangers. So we are involved in, my, my practice is involved in the Edmondson suite and a whole series of other plans that the, the club have feels if you're... Yeah, I mean, I, I think there, there's... You know, we don't, we've got, regardless of who it is, you know, you're you're not involved in talking about your client's business, generally speaking. But I think trying to do something that is respectful to people who are are, are employing you. Well, right, there's decent people. The fact that you're, you, you know, you're, you're a fan as well. And it's, it's, I think it's difficult when you're in a business that's involved in football and you might be a fan of the club as well. But, you know, I, I, I think there's, I think there's a, a stability there now. I don't know whether Gerald will, will, will stay this year, whether he would, whether he stayed, whether lose or or win the title. Because I think the offers that he's going to get are are probably 
um, such that he might feel, well, that's three years. His kind of reputation's pretty well enhanced. I think the only thing that would attract him is maybe having a go at the Champions League, you know. They're playing some good football and they're pretty organised. And I, I think in this kind of new environment where you don't have fans and you don't have other things that are potentially influencing unusual results in the game, that's the main thing to be. Andy, uh, not many copies of the last last piece you no, had. The last, the last thing that uh, I probably had on Nutmeg was uh, an article about Billy Hughes. Now, Billy Hughes was this guy who, he's he's one to look up for cracking photographs. Billy was John Yogi Hughes' brother, uh, the Celtic guy. And, but Billy Hughes was part of the Sunderland team that won the FA Cup. And he was, he's a club legend and he had died and had, had been writing a thing about him and always, he'd a cracking mouser. He's a cracking one way on my mouser, Billy Hughes. He's, he looks like, a, he just looks like he could fight, but he, he was an incredible player. And it, it happened during lockdown. I started watching these games and I thought, oh, that looks like Billy Hughes, you know, how they shown. So I started doing one about Billy Hughes, which was, uh, and then the first one, maybe I, one about Bob Cramps as well, about, about the end of, all the guys out there, I was listening to the radio and I can bear what's going on, you know what I mean? Remember he used to get Bob Cramps in and I, I met him in W I met him in Watersons in Sucker Hall Street. And I, I thought, that's Bob Cramps, I'll need to talk to him. That's Billy. There's a there's a better there's a much better one, maybe in colour from about seventy four. That's a good one though. You can imagine and he's got the he looks like a, a Mexican drug enforcer. But Billy had died, he had, he was in I knew his his nephew, and his nephew was giving me all these. That was him not long after he made his debut. He chose not to play. Celtic were after him, and he chose to go to Sunderland so he could wouldn't be any baggage or any. He would be judged as a, a player for himself. Oh, you're nearly there. That's the, the next one's the next one's the hair in the tash. Nice. So Billy Hughes, he was just this incredible. You watch him playing, and he he could have he could have played in Spain and all that. He was a fantastic footballer. But oh, there were an awful lot of great guys that were in the division below just. They were in the same division and they, they won the cup. So I had a Billy uh, Hughes one. And then I had I wrote one about Alfie Conn, Dave. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it, Alfie Conn took my uh, my father-in-law's uh, football team when they were young. Right. He took, he's from Coat Bridge. He stays about two, two miles away. But I was pet- I'd be petrified. Then there were other guys that uh, that know him. They were like saying, "We could probably get him. He'd meet you for a coffee, easy, and all that." I said, and, but he was getting a lot of grief. He was getting the new the new guys, but the younger that looked like one there with him playing the golf. Yeah, mm. Mm. Aye, that's that's him later on. I think that's him at, at Leicester or something. He just wouldn't mess with him. He looks like a James Bond buddy. <laughs> so he does. In fact, I was going to say he looks like a James Bond, and I changed it mid sentence to a buddy. He looks like he could uh, he could handle himself. But he was he was in a Sunderland team with Dennis Stewart and all these guys coming through. But I'm a, my, my next one. What was I Alfie Con? So I was talking about again in lockdown, watching taping the. Remember there was no football at all to watch before the. Yeah. Um, maybe about a year ago now, no, about nine months ago, and it was all those ITV, the big match or something. It was on, yeah. and it was like a different sport. <laughs> it was just like that's a good one there. The mouse are there like that. <laughs> Billy Hughes. He's not I just even... always knew about Billy Hughes because of that. Because I remember, I'm not, I swear to God, right? I, I read it in a shoot magazine, Coat Bridge. He was from Coat Bridge. I thought, oh, God, I'm from Airdrie at the time, but Coat Bridge is like, like, oh, the guy from Coat Bridge is in the FA Cup final. Yeah. Uh, I upset at Leicester. He didn't stay long at Leicester. 
Is it Jock Wallace? You know, is that Gregor Stevens at the back as well? Greg, uh, yeah, Gregor Stevens in the middle, yeah. yeah. There's loads of Scots in there. Um, Alan Young. Gary Lineker at the front. Yeah. Oh, did I ever tell you the story? But my, in fact, I think I've actually blogged this, not to use it. It was Gary, Gary Lineker's boots. I used to wear Gary Lineker's. My pal next door, Bobby Shaw, was at Leicester. I think he was related to Tiger Shaw. I think he's Tiger Shaw's great nephew or something. There was some link to Tiger Shaw, the famous Rangers guy. But Bobby, anyway, Shug, and he played. But uh, Chuck Wallace came up the garden path <laughs> next door and uh, he signed him. He was up at Aberdeen. He was one of the guys that was at Everton in the, the October week. And then, anyway, he saw he's different. He's always getting taken up to Aberdeen. Aberdeen, he came close to signing, but he went to Leicester as an apprentice. But it didn't work out. I don't know what happened. I think he, he got a bad injury and he was homesick as well. So he came back a man. He went down as my, my next door name. My, my hero, right, Bobby? I was about 13. He was about 16, 17. He used to always give you all these tips when we were playing and all that. It was a great. I thought he was going to, but he just his heart was away with it. Just didn't like it anymore. Long story short, he gave me his, his sister Sandra said that Bobby says you have to go in and see him. So Bobby Shaw and I see Bobby and he's like here and he's giving me all this training gear and all that. And he gave me these Adidas boots and they were the softest, best. I've wasted the punchline obviously, haven't I? I was the rest for trying to tell a story. It's why I could never do stand up. Anyway, so I had these boots right? and they were amazing. They were dead soft leather. Then it turns out. Years later, every time I wore them, I scored, I'd scored five goals. I was a school bullet and all that, high school. scored five goals. And any time I could lob, I could hit these amazing shots. And they were just the comfiest. It was like a slipper. They were honestly so soft. Years later, I was in Tesco or something. Oh, Andra. That's <laughs> like, oh, Bobby's the dog. See, what happened to the Adidas boots I gave you? Because I gave them to Hoffy, Paul Hawthorne. They, they, I grew up, they were about nine and a half, and I was about 11. <laughs> 11 or 12, and my, my feet were getting on narrow. And I was like, get ready then. So I gave him to Paul Hawthorne. She goes, oh. He went, they were Gary Lineker's boots. I said, why didn't you tell me they were Gary Lineker's boots? He goes, because I knew you wouldn't have worn them. And he was right, I wouldn't have worn them. And he, he didn't tell me, how oh, sweet that, how cool is that? I wanted you to wear them because I knew how good they were because I had to polish them. He was polishing them. He was his, he was his apprentice. Mm. That's, that's what's wrong with it. Bring that back. That's what I said. <laughs> anyway, Gary Lineker's boots, maybe I should bring it. I think it's online somewhere, that story, because never Leicester. Did well in 2016 or 2015, yeah. whenever they won the league in it. Was it 16? Uh, I wrote a thing about Gary Lineker's boots and I just put it on a blog thing I had. But, uh, so I've got Bobby, I've got Al- Alfie Cohn, a really good one up, Alfie Cohn sitting waiting because I was watching Alfie Cohn play and curly hair and look, Billy Conley and all that in the 70s. He looked brilliant. An amazing, re- I mean, an amazing rapport with every club I went to, but his record, when you look at his stats, his stats weren't fantastic, yeah. but he just had this great. Rapport with every because he gave his all when he played the game this sort of way, right? So I just yeah. loved that about him. So there was that, uh, and then there's one about Johan Cruyff that's in, and the next one that's coming out uh, shortly, imminently. Nutmeg Magazine, I think most of our, our listeners will be aware of his uh, putting it before. 10 quid football periodical it comes out quarterly with loads of cracking, loads of cracking stories from all all over about all aspects of, all aspects of football. Sorry, I'm just going to jump in because I think I've found a photograph of those boots that you might have had, Andy. So you can confirm if these are indeed. That would be Gunter Netzer's boots. Gunter Netzer was a size 15 or something, <laughs> a size 14. Yeah, well, there you are. You'd want you'd want two of them. The gold you? one, I'll take the gold one anyway. <laughs> it's like the Billy Conley one where you would leave them in the fireplace when you go out, so that if somebody breaks in, they think he <laughs> lives here. Scares people <laughs> off. That's a good one. Aye, that was that was a nice story. We, uh, Gary Lineker I had these boots, but they were yeah. the best boots I've ever had. 
Sounds like something out of Roy the Rovers, doesn't it? Well, certainly, Gary, Lin- Gary Lineker's <laughs> boots sounds like the title or whatever. Yeah, I know. Yeah. So, talent to uh, uh, David. So, uh, uh, David, your latest novel was released uh, in paperback in January. There's only one Danny Garvey, and it's set around the world of Ayrshire football. And like uh, you say, it's not actually a book about football. It's kind of a, a book about friendships and broken dreams and... Uh, False promise and uh, you're returning, returning home. Uh, and when you were in, as a guest of the podcast before, it didn't even have a, a mm. title at, at, that, at that time. Uh, and you could tell us a wee, a wee bit of it, a wee bit of it, that. Um, yeah, it didn't have a title, and I, I think I'd been interested in writing something fictional that had a football spine to it. If that's the right word for quite a while, you know. But I think the the, the previous books all sort of followed a, a, a certain writing format and I think this one this one was the first book I've, I've I've written or the first of anything that I've really written where I had no idea where it was going. I didn't really have a structure. I had the loose idea that the timeline would carry a season because that would be important to the arc of the story and it would be important to the individual as well. But it was really, it was kind of a book about masculinity in the, in the west of Scotland spanning the the period from probably late uh, mid mid 80s to 1996 when the bulk of the books actually set you know um which is a, a, a period where I think masculinity really kind of changed probably a lot to do with rave culture and you know 1989 and 90 and people feeling slightly different about music and drugs and changing that kind of dynamic that for decades before that had had been very, you know, masculinity had been pretty well defined, I think. Um, and and probably, you know, putting a, a, a central character in here who uh, might, might be, an, be described as a natural with a ball at his feet, but not necessarily a natural footballer in, in the sense of how does that individual um, with a whole background history of trauma and sensitivity and all the rest of it or does he fit within a, a fairly heavily masculine environment like that you know you would find in Ayrshire Junior Football whilst I had I had an outline by the time I met you guys and I knew the direction it was going in didn't have an ending didn't know where it how it was going to work itself out um, you know and all of that all of that really just materialized through it becoming more about an examination of someone's fractured mental state rather than the football itself, you know. Um, I was pretty pretty heavily influenced by the Damned United. And, it, and it, I think that probably takes the origin of it away back, maybe about 15 years or something like that. I, I was working down in Leeds um, and I stayed in the Queen's Hotel and we were there during the week and I was there on my own and, you know, feeling a wee bit kind of, this look, I don't know if you've been in the Queen's Hotel, um, but it, it is as mentally draining as the Damned United makes it sound when you put Brian Clough in there for 44 days, you know. Um, it's a really kind of strange uh, structure. And I found that, and we, you know, we were out in the street two or three um, two or three times when the fire alarm went off in the middle of the night, and there was only maybe about seven or eight people out in the street, massive big hotel, and nobody seemed to be staying in it at the time. And it was really quite, um, the whole thing was quite disconcerting. So when I started getting into this, I was kind of tapping back into that and understanding how 
um, you know, that environment of being removed from your family and, you know, being all, all of these things that surround an individual that make you feel comfortable with your life are, take, are taken away from you. Um, how frail that maybe makes people's mental state. And that started to become the, the driver for what the book was really about, you know. I did a thing for The Guardian recently talking about 10 best books. It, it, the description is 10 best books that are about football, but not really about football, <laughs> if that makes sense. And they were all the ones that kind of influenced this book. And, you know, even subliminal things like Roddy Doyle's The Van, where the 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 thing that propels the story in the background to it is, you know, Ireland's uh, running the World Cup. But yeah, I mean, I, I think the... It's, it's it's such a great thing to 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 base a story on, you know, um, an an addiction to football and the illogical and irrational passions that it throws up. You know, how could how could how could you not succeed? You know, and uh, it's it's come out in the audio book. Is this your first novel? It's come out as an audio. Yeah, it's, it's quite difficult. I think it's quite difficult to get. Well, I don't think I know it's difficult to get uh, books that are written in um, any form of dialect you know, into an audiobook format. Um, even at Irvin Welsh books, I think, sometimes even struggle on that front. And and it's the flawed belief that um from Audible and some of the other companies that put audiobooks together, it's that kind of flawed belief that they don't sell because people don't I mean it's it's such a lazy um stereotype. It goes all the way back to Kelman one in the booker to be honest. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's that it's just and and the good thing about Shoggy Bain winning that prize this year is that that'll change it for a lot of people. I mean, some of the some of the writing um, fiction writing in Scotland at, at the minute is the, the best in the world, in my opinion. You know, I mean, clearly I haven't read it all, but I think it's the, the reputation for telling stories that are about real life people and but doing it in a way that. Um, you know, doesn't judge them or doesn't, you know, um, Graham Armstrong's The Young Team or um, David Keenan's books. You know, they, they, these things are incredible at the minute. Um, it's, a real, it's, it's a real thrill to even be writing in that context, writing fiction in that context at the minute. All right. So anything else we want to say, uh, Andy? Andy's no, I'm intrigued. This idea of this location. And being, I think it's... It's a good starting point, and also know David as well. I know David Keenan really well. Used to hang out with him when he was in these bands. I didn't know your background, Andy. I didn't. I didn't know the Captain America stuff. That's that fascinates me hugely. And I, the next book I'm writing is a band touring the deep south of America in 19 early 80s as part of the story. You know, so um, maybe tap <laughs> into any memories that you've got would be useful. Do you know? But anyway, I, I think the the, I mean, David Keenan, I've mentioned this to other people as well, was pretty influential in this book. We, we, we did, I've known him for a while, and we've done Edinburgh Book Festival things together. And last year... Is that a thing with the pastels? Well, 2019, we went to Germany, and we did a wee tour in Germany. My translation of my books in Germany and his book in Germany, and the publishers put the two of us together I, I, I think not necessarily knowing that we knew each other and we'd done other things together. And there was a few gigs uh, culminating in one where the pastels were playing, Stephen and the guys were all over. 
in uh, Berlin the night we were playing in the Ramones Museum in Berlin. Wow. Um, so like good night. catching up afterwards. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think just spending a bit of time with him um, and listening to him talking about the rhythm of writing and how, you know, how he... He's, a, he's always been really bigger. bright. Very, very, very well, articulate. And, and he's just mesmerising to watch. Once you get you know, going, you know, you can't get a word done. He's worse than me. Uh, <laughs> you know, just he, he made a difference. I mean, it just, and I, I think the starting point for um, a lot of this book was really trying to write without the safety net of a worked out plot and a clear idea of where it was going. And, you know, I found that quite, that intrigues me quite as well. frightening at the just, beginning, but exhilarating as well at the same time David and I was at King Tut's the night Oasis get signed and it was David's band that we were in to see him and him and boyfriend our friends from boyfriend uh, they were the, the two supporters of another band from uh, Manchester where they were so but I, another, I was standing beside Alan McGee and his sister it was me Eugene Kelly Alan McGee and um, McGee's wee sister who's one of my Facebook friends I love you lassie and she, <laughs> And I, I just thought they were crap. <laughs> I thought it was, I was starting to shake my head, going, "What is he seeing them?" That I felt, I actually felt sorry for them. They looked to me as if they were out, they were like a year behind. Yeah. Everyone had moved in. It was like scream Adelica and all that happened, and yeah. everyone was in this sort of psyched. They were just sort of like <laughs> just like status quo or something. <laughs> and, and I was, I think I was. See, it's one of those things where I, I tried to write a book about it, and no one had a, quite a lot of people interested in it. But no one, in the end, see the, the now they always have these big meetings, and then they they, they have the buyers and all that, and sitting in the meetings, and the buyers are like, oh, no. Nah. <laughs> that's it. But it's a waste. See if you tell people that. Well, I'm telling people now, I suppose. Bye. So I uh, waste were great that night. I thought they were. I could tell straight away they were going to be stars. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but, but I always remember David. David's band. David's he's quite a competitive lad, as you know. But um, but he said he knows his stuff and his music. You know, crying hair. I always had sort of the fuzzy sort of MC5 hair and all that. He was a great. He was a really good guitarist. And I have a lot of time for him. I haven't spoken to him for ages and ages. But um, it's, that night they were <laughs> they were the everyone sort of rearranged. The, there was about four bands playing, all three bands in Oasis. And Oasis weren't going to go on, and all the bands uh, took it like nine or ten minutes off their set so they all could play some songs because McGee was there. <laughs> but Eighty Wheeler, they didn't do it. Dave's band played a full set and they weren't changing it. And that. that's quite cool. They did that, <laughs> trying their best not to get away. But Oasis ended up doing well. I, I never saw it. But it was amazing how somebody can go in, and that was that was the point of the book. You're standing watching something, and you can't see it. But see over, I don't know if it was big, it was a bank holiday, and there was only about I was thirty people. Everyone always claims to have been there, and I genuinely was right. And there was there was only about eighteen people there, right. maybe even less right. than that. People who were watching it, a lot mm-hmm. more people were downstairs. I remember Jerry Love was downstairs, Teenage Fan Club, he was there, and Paul Cardo, who's a man, he was sort of a promoter and and, and knew. Uh, a few of the bands as well. He was there, but other than that, I, I can't remember. Yeah, I don't recall all these people being there, you know. But it was an amazing night, and it, it, it's, it maybe come out. But I've also got a book about record labels that no one that it was. Remember, um, maybe I should talk about this. Uh, I could just say, uh, <laughs> um, friend Adrian Sell. Do you know Adrian? From you'll know Adrian if you're a writer in Glasgow. Yeah. Adrian, Adrian had freight. And freight, uh, they imploded. They had a big fallout and they imploded. So yeah, yeah. I was in Ebury Press. The book was going to be in Ebury Press and, and they had something happened. The main guy left and he left this younger woman and a girl. It was lovely, Lassie. 
I won't name her name, but she went in a big meeting and, and pitched it as a Father's Day gift, this label book. So the next thing I know, I'm like, oh, why did you pitch this? And she goes, she was convinced it was going to happen. It was called Label with Love. It was the 50 record labels that have changed your life. And it, so it was just like the Cruyff book, just images and iconic stuff and the Atlantic label and how it started. And I talk about everything. I talk about all kinds of, every band you can, every label you can think of that were all inspirational labels, sub pop and all that. And then I talk about, I talk about being the, the creation thing. I talk about all that. But uh, she, she pitched it as a Father's Day gift. Again, <laughs> the buyers like that. There's only one Father's Day thing. And, and I said, no, it's a gift for every day. It's a birthday gift. <laughs> it's any, the guy who's the mad guy in your house, the mad woman in your house that loves vinyl, that wants to go into the shed and a man shed, the woman's shed, any shed, the side shed, I was going mental them. You know, no. So that never happened either. So I've got, I've got more books that haven't happened. It's probably a book in the books that don't happen. So that's really my story. But I know Dave really well. Dave, David. Nice done, really. Nice done, man. I couldn't believe it when I saw he was on Faber. I was like, oh, was it Faber he's on? I, um, One of his big books was on Faber, I think. Yeah, the... I mean, he, he's, got a, he's got a book coming out, um, the, the uh, Monument Maker, I think, is coming out in summer. That's I'd, I'm sure he said when we were away, because we, we were looking at cathedrals yeah. and stuff like that, just downtime and an element of that in it. Um, I'm sure he said it was about 800 pages or something. It would be. Uh, Probably a million words or something. Aye. <laughs> Whenever he was, he was younger, he, he did all this sort of, he, his level of knowledge about music was, it was kind of a prof- professorial. He knew about, you know, he knew about that sort of Hindu folk music. He knew about like Albanian banjos. and. <laughs> just, I'm trying to remember the name. There was this sort of really influential magazine that he wrote for as well that, but I, he was, he's, he's, he deserves his luck. I mean, I'm, I'm chuffed for him. Uh, but he probably, I wonder if he, I always wonder if he remembers me, but he doesn't. I know he does. He used to drink the staging post beside me <laughs> in Airdrie. He used to talk music. Is that where, is that where you're from, Andy? I'm Airdrie, aye, Airdrie. Aye. Aye. And uh, I love, I'm living in Coatbridge now. I'm born in Bells Hill, uh, raised in Airdrie, living in Coatbridge, so North Lanarkshire. <laughs> North Lanarkshire, lad. Aye. What about yourself, you? Glaswegian, uh, but moved down here um, probably mid late seventies. We're over here. We're here. Where are we? Sorry, come on, come on. Of course, uh, I thought we were buying Leeds. I'm going you in Leeds. <laughs> I am. Looking on. Just briefly, <laughs> when I was going through a mental breakdown. It was in Leeds. Um, no, I've been in Kilmarnock for Sorry, Andy. Uh, all that, all that time. Um, and I, it's. Um, I'm in North Lanarks are quite a lot at the minute. We're, we're doing the new Monklands Hospital. One so, of the planes. So, I uh, was. Was that, was that, has that been released yet? Is that out in the ether? Right? It's planes. Up at, had, sorry? It's up at planes, up at Nairdry. Uh, Western Moffat. Western Moffat, yep. Is that? That's, aye, so on the road to plane, sorry. Aye, aye. aye. Western Moffat, aye. Oh, that's in the public domain if I haven't been given secrets away. Uh, I think uh, it is. I think it's a politician. about a month ago. It's okay, we're so, all live anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> Aye. So, but you guys, what are you two up to? Well, I, I've, um, I'd never thought it was going to happen, but they, they replayed my little oh, video yeah, on yeah. View from a Terrace last weekend. Right, right. I, I, thought, I thought it was like, I must be right down in the list because they've repeated every other video, every other video, and eventually they sent me an email saying, oh, you're going to be on. 
I'm like, yeah, okay, oh, cool, I'll it. But it's like, it's a bloody time. It's about bloody time you replayed that. I've got a different hairstyle. How <laughs> are you, Tom? Uh, well, as I was saying to Andy B, the other day there, um, I've got a deal with Pitch Publishing to write a book about Scotland at the 1982 World Cup. Oh, brilliant. Uh, which is due to come out April next year. Good stuff. So it's, it's kind of already written. Okay, I've been working on it. Oh, it is already written. For a while, that's pretty much. <laughs> pretty much already written. How did we but, do? Uh, was that? How did we do? Uh, uh, we went in Golden. Oh, typical. <laughs> so, is, that like, I, is that nostalgia for you now, Tom? Do you do you remember that as? No, as I, for I, me, it was my first World Cup. I see, because nineteen eighty two World Cup, I was about sixteen, and yeah, I was I, I thought it was kind of a cool, right? I was and I was in the Rolling Stones and that, and the drums <laughs> and, and the undertones. I remember well, this well, band called You Too. Nobody <laughs> heard of them and all that, right? I know, I know. And who else was it? I the and the Ramones and all that. Nineteen eighty. But the whenever I hear you talk about it, I think all oh, that. And then I think I'm a, that could have been. That's my my seventy four. That's my World Cup mm. seventy four. My my moment. I think there's a train of thought that sort of between your eighth and twelfth birthdays, Aye. the World Cup that takes place between then is usually what you consider the best. Eighty two I mean, for me. I clearly remember sitting down to to watch that New Zealand game. You know, my Aye. dad. You know, clearly remember, like, hotly anticipating it kind of thing, you know. Um, that was the one in Northern Ireland did well, and it wasn't. It? Yeah. yeah Spain. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I remember it being a really good, really good World Cup. The 8-2 was the, the one we got thumped with Brazil. That was the one where... Uh, uh, the toe poke. Uh, so it was me, three brothers, and a sister, and we were all sitting on the sofa, and the sofa was this... It was a spring thing. So springs and... Um, cushions on them doesn't he make it sound particularly comfortable which it wasn't so Dave Neri hits the ball boom back of the net every one of us come off the sofa <laughs> at the same time Found stuff at the and same we time, all man. land at the same time <laughs> and that sofa was notorious for those springs popping out so when we land down it just went boom right through you but we just immediately looked around to my dad and it just killed the mood Oh. Then and then. It was like Scotland had just scored the goal in the World Cup, and it was like, oh no! Yeah. So does that mean you'll be wanting to borrow my Radio Rentals nineteen eighty two World Cup wall chart? Oh, is it filled in? Well, I've, I've, I've now you have a filled that I've now recently also bought. It's a Fuji film one, which is the same sort of design, which isn't filled in. The other one is filled in. So you can you can you can pick I'm, a choose. I'm sure one. also sorry to talk over you. I'm sure also the, the this book the football book, I do the Panini sticker book, and I'm sure 1982 is that not the first one where they they changed the the, the texture of them and they're highly they're really collectible because they went from being like ones that you stuck on to actual like you know, the plasticky ones. Hmm. Like, I've never really thought that, but yeah, I guess I'm they, sure they 1982 was the year that they changed changed the texture of them. Because yeah. my wife, our, our, our brother, my, thank God my wife's at football, but she had, uh, she nearly, and it was a Belgian, <laughs> it's one Belgian guy, Poirot, I can't remember, it's a Belgian player, never get the, that was the one that started forgetting the whole, and they were stickies, were the ones that were, uh, maybe, maybe I'm just dreaming about something. <laughs> about Belgians. Yeah. I had a big book, the Panini sticker book, it was gloss, they were all glossy. They, yeah. They'd move. I'm sure they changed that year. 82, I think they're more collectible if you've got them finished, maybe. Yeah, well, it's one of the ones, I don't have 
well, there's quite a few things I don't have, but that's certainly one of the ones I have on my to-get to get list. So. All right, well, well, we'll wrap up there, I think, yeah, unless anybody's got anything else to say or anything else to plug. No, I'm, I'm happy with that. It was great to chat to you. I'm glad I, this is only the second time I've done a podcast and I was uh, pretty nervous. It was, it was really natural. It's very good. Uh, totally, you just made me feel at home. So well, thanks for we'll that. Get, we'll get you on a, a proper one, Andy. But we'll get, 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 get an old magazine. Aye. Me, you, and Dave Keenan. Get rid of Dave Ross. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. Hi, Dave. Man, he's a legend. Nice oh. to meet you, Dave. Once this lockdown's and, and over, you, and you. Once this lockdown's over, I'll be chapping at the door and we'll be in Watsons signing yeah. Yeah. signing other people's books. <laughs> I mean, it's it's funny that just. Tiny wee world, you know, like know, Scotland, you know, the people that know everybody else, you know. Um, I, just, I think it was just because they, I was a bit embarrassed to say it was my book, but once I said it, they kept following the, especially the football book. The football book was going nuts, and, and there was like eight and nine, and then you go in, there was only two, and you're like, yes, result. So the, the, the wound as a manager was earlier, kept on giving me stickers to sign. So anyway, repeating it all. But I will definitely catch up and I'll tell you the real stories about Dave. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, listen th- thanks again, guys, right. for joining thank us. You. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. 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 Thank Take you. care, everyone. Good Cheers, to see you. Take Bye. care. Bye bye. And so we've come to the end of this week's podcast, and we'd just like to say a big thank you once again to our guests, David F. Ross and Andy Bolin. And as always, I'd like to say thank you to Tom for being Tom. Thanks, Andy. And to our listeners out there, please keep listening, sharing, give us some feedback, visit the webpage. Uh, visit the, the charity partner as well and until the next time let's shoot the breeze <laughs>